Well, good morning to you. Uh, if we have not, not met before, my name is Matt Mulloyan, and I serve as the pastor of Liberty Church, and I'm uh, just grateful to have you all with us today. Uh, we're going to be in Psalm 104 this morning, so if you have Bibles, you can go ahead and start making your way there. Um, if you're using one of those black hardcover Bibles that Tim uh, mentioned just a second ago, page 502 in those Bibles. Otherwise, kind of aim for the middle, and you'll at least be in the general vicinity. Um, we're, co- we're continuing in our series in the Apostles' Creed, which we're going to be in throughout the majority of the summer. Uh, last week, we looked at this name of God in the Creed, that God is the Father Almighty. And we couldn't quite sync the series up perfectly enough to talk about that on Father's Day. Um, that would have been maybe more ideal. But being that today is Father's Day, just before we launch into our, uh, our next part of the Creed, which we're going to look at today, I just want to take a moment to celebrate uh, and encourage the dads among us in this room. Uh, and just would say to you, men, we have a unique opportunity, uh, a unique role, a unique responsibility to point our children, and really even beyond that, to really point our entire world to God as our Father. We get to mirror that in our relationships with our own kids. And nothing in that um, devalues or demeans women and, and moms. Uh, no intent to devalue or demean that. We desperately need women and moms who love Jesus and point their children to Jesus as well. But that God chose to reveal himself to us using this name of Father, Father Almighty. That puts a healthy weight on those of us who become uh, fathers, who become human fathers to our kids. Um, that weight is meant to drive us over and over again to, our, to dependence and reliance upon our own Heavenly Father. But then in the, in the strength that he provides as we get to bear that family resemblance out, it means that we can love our children as our Father has loved us. We get to show that and display that to the world. Um, that's a hard role, as many of you know well, even better than I do. Um, it's a role that, in which we will die uh, a thousand deaths. We'll die to our selfishness. We'll die to our preferences. We'll die to our uh, idols of comfort and control and ease. But it is a noble and it is a good Role. It is a good calling and good thing to become a father. So uh, as new as I am to that endeavor, and as much as I desperately need to grow in my own pursuit of what uh, faithful fatherhood looks like, I just want to say to you this morning, fellow dads, I'm with you, uh, grateful to have you with me as we really uh, pursue this good and noble endeavor of fatherhood. Today we're going to um, be looking at this next part of the Apostles' Creed, specifically the part that talks about God as being the creator of heaven and earth. And when Scripture speaks about God as creator of heaven and earth, uh, what it's talking about is that God is the one who is responsible. He has made everything that is, both uh, what is visible uh, and what is invisible. And what I hope we see today is that if we believe that, if, at the, whole, the creed is all about trust, it's all about faith and belief. If we believe that God is the creator of everything, that makes a radical difference in our view of the world. That will transform all of our perceptions, all of our understanding all of our interpretations of really everything that we encounter. The first thing that we read uh, in Scripture itself is this account of God as creator. But rather than read um, Genesis 1 and 2 this morning, I want us to look at Psalm 104. Uh, In it, and I'll explain why in a little bit, um, but in it, the psalmist praises the greatness of God for all he's created. He also talks a lot about how he continues to sustain and provide for what he has made. So follow along with me as I read. It's a 35-verse psalm, but it's poetic. It goes faster than just kind of a long story narrative style. I'm going to read the whole psalm, and then, um, then we'll continue on. So follow along with me as I read. 
Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. He lays the beams of his chambers on the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. He makes his messengers winds, his ministers a flaming fire. He set the earth on its foundation so that it should never be moved. You covered it with the deep as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. At your rebuke, they fled. At the sound of your thunder, they took to flight. The mountains rose, the valleys sank down to the place that you appointed for them. You set a boundary that they may not pass, so that they might not again cover the earth. You make springs gush forth in the valleys. They flow between the hills. They give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. Beside them, the birds of the heavens dwell. They sing among the branches. From your lofty abode, you water the mountains. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. The trees of the Lord are watered abundantly, the cedars of Lebanon that he planted. In them the birds build their nests. The stork has her home in the fir trees. The high mountains are for the wild goats. The rocks are a refuge for the rock badgers. He made the moon to mark the seasons. The sun knows its time for setting. You make darkness and it is night, when all the beasts of the forest creep about. The young lions roar for their prey, seeking their food from God. When the sun rises, they steal away and lie down in their dens. Man goes out to his work and to his labor until the evening. O Lord, how manifold are your works! In wisdom have you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Here is the sea, great and wide, which teems with creatures innumerable, living things both small and great. There go the ships and Leviathan, which you form to play in it. These all look to you to give them their food in due season. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are filled with good things. When you hide your face, they are dismayed. When you take away their breath, they die and return to their dust. When you send forth your spirit, they are created, and you renew the face of the ground. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works, who looks on the earth and it trembles, who touches the mountains and they smoke. I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have being. May my meditation be pleasing to him, for I rejoice in the Lord. Let sinners be consumed from the earth and let the wicked be no more. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord. This is God's word. Let me pray for us. God, you are our Father, and in you we live and move and have our being. So may the words today of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing to you. We pray this through Christ, who is our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Let me tell you uh, this morning about the greatest round of golf that was ever played in the history of the world. The year was 1994, and the place was North Korea. And the man was none other than the dear leader, Kim Jong-il. The 7,700 Pyongyang, I can't pronounce that word very well, Pyongyang golf course was no match for the 52-year-old dictator who fired a remarkable round of 34 that day, 38 strokes under par. Now, immediately, rumors began to circulate that he had no less than 11 hole-in-ones in this stunning performance. 
the odds of a golfer making a hole-in-one in their lifetime, 12,500 to 1. So if you find yourself thinking, there is no way that he had 11 hole-in-ones that day, you're right. It was only five. It's only five. And as I'm sure you're imagining, uh, Kim Jong-il didn't actually shoot a 38 under par that day. Interestingly, though, this fabled round was more of a scorekeeping issue than a made-up, falsified account. So earlier this month, there was an author named Josh Sens, and he wrote an article about his travels to North Korea. While he was there, he spoke to the manager of that golf course where Kim Jong-il shot this, this round of 34. And when asked about the feat, like how did that happen, the manager explained that rather than using the traditional scorekeeping system that day, the scorekeeper used a relative-to-par system. So a one was not a hole-in-one, a one was a one-over-par, or what we call a bogey. So 34 was not his score, that was the number of strokes he was over-par. So he actually shot a 106. (laughs) But either then unaware of the difference in scorekeeping, or willingly wanting to attribute this superhuman feat to the dictator, the state-run media heard that he shot a 34 and just reported it. Became legend very quickly. Okay. I say all that to say this, the scoring system makes a huge difference, does it not? It makes a huge difference. A 34 using the traditional scorekeeping method is by far the best round of golf that's ever been played. A 34 using this relative to par system is just another weekend warrior hacking it up trying to break 100. It's a big difference. And that's a little bit like the lenses that we use to look at the world. Our lenses that we use to look at the world make a huge difference in how we understand and perceive things. And like a scoring system, there are some key foundational elements to our view of the world that affect how we see everything. Regardless of of the religion that you adhere to, or if you're a person that doesn't adhere to a specific religion or faith or creed, there are at least four foundational questions that we all ask and that we all have to answer in one way or another. Those questions get framed in different ways. I really appreciate how uh, an author named Ravi Zacharias frames them. The four questions are these. The question of origin. Where did we come from? The question of meaning, why are we here? The question of morality, what is right and what is wrong? And the question of destiny, where is all of this going? Christians, as they profess faith in God as creator of heaven and earth, this this phrase that we're looking at from the creed today, as they rejoice in God's creation like the psalmist does here in Psalm 104, they are answering all of those questions. We won't have time to dig in in depth to each one of them this morning, but I want to look briefly at each of them considering not, how, not only how God as creator shapes our lenses, but also what kind of responses are compelled as we look to answer those four questions. So let's look first at the question of origin. Okay, why, where did we and where did everything else come from? In Genesis chapter 1, Scripture begins with, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So we believe that the world and everything in it is not the result of some kind of impersonal force or series of coincidental events. We believe that there's a personal God who out of nothing created all that is. And though it doesn't follow exactly the same pattern as Genesis 1 and 2, um, Psalm 104 really mirrors that creation account. You probably heard it as I read through it. The psalmist here speaks of the foundations of the earth and the sea, how God divided the land from the waters. It talks about how there's, uh, God's provided water to sustain life on the land. It talks about how God's provided food and shelter to sustain life. It talks about, starting in verse 19, the rhythms of day and night, the sun and the moon, day and night. It talks about uh, how 
not just life on the surface of the land, but life under the sea. There are a couple reasons that I wanted us to look at Psalm 104 instead of Genesis 1 and 2 this morning. For one, it's a less familiar text, yet it's really rich in what it says. And it's important for us to see that, that God as creator is something that saturates really all of Scripture. It's not just the beginning account, and then we kind of leave that in the rearview mirror. It's actually something that permeates Scripture and is meant to permeate our view of life in an ongoing way. Moreover, Psalm 104 uses this personal name of God. Whenever you see the word LORD in all caps in your Bible, that's this personal name of God, Yahweh. Genesis 1 and 2, rightfully so, uses another name for God. It uses a name for God that stresses his otherness from creation. So God is creator, and as creator, he is separate from creation. Um, That differentiates what Christians believe from um, a pantheistic worldview, which says that God is really just the sum of what he has made, or he is bound up within his creation. So Genesis 1 and 2 says, no, God is other, distinct from his creation. But neither is he distant or impersonal. We sang that today, and Teresa mentioned that today. So this psalm here stresses the personal nature of God. And then furthermore, the psalmist brings this creative work of God into the present. So verses 27 through 30 in particular uh, show us that the psalmist here is really concerned to to speak of God not just as like a watchmaker who wound up the world and then kind of took his hands off and let things play out, it becomes really clear that the psalmist is saying here, God is intimately involved in an active way, sustaining what he has made. Now let me just say a, a brief word about faith and science. Faith and science are often pitted against one another in cultural conversations. Perhaps you've had uh, your own wrestlings with that or debates with other people about what does is, what is this interchange of faith and science look like? They're often pitted against each other where there are people of faith and there are people of science. But the tragedy of that is that these are not meant to be enemies of one another. They're meant to be really complementary pieces of how we understand things. Uh, Faith, and particularly the creation account of places like Genesis 1, and even what the psalmist says here in Psalm 104, those are primarily concerned with who. Who is the one that is behind all that exists? It's primarily answering a who question about God. The Bible uh, is not a scientific textbook. And so it doesn't talk about the mechanics of many things. It does get into the how of some things. It doesn't get into the mechanics of much. John Calvin, the famous reformer, once said, he who would learn astronomy, let him go elsewhere. We don't look to the Bible to to, to show us all of the mechanics of astronomy and how the universe and the galaxies work. Science and the scientific process, on the other hand, is primarily concerned with the how questions. How does this happen? Okay? Now, faith and science will inevitably crash into one another, and they will conflict with one another in mutually exclusive ways. We can't kid ourselves about that. We can't get to this kind of milk toast, middle-of-the-road idea that says we can find a way that it all coheres perfectly. Uh, if, as a scientist, you rule out the existence of God, then you have pitted science over and against faith. On the other hand, it's really tragic when people of faith are anti-science because they really miss an opportunity to demonstrate the brilliance of God's design. And I know that's true for me in the ways that I have wrestled with this interchange of science and faith. For me, knowing more about the billions of galaxies that are ever expanding and light that is so many light years away, I can barely comprehend that, and learning about the intricacies of the human body and the brain, those things for me fuel more worship and awe and reverence of God, more than if I didn't know the intricacies and complexities of those things. Now, I'm not even 
close to the most qualified person to speak on this. There are some great resources out there for you as you get into these questions and wrestle through them. But let me just offer you a couple considerations as you try to navigate life being a person of faith and a person who appreciates science. Number one is consider the assumptions. Consider the assumptions. Uh, If a scientist begins with this assumption that there is no God or that the supernatural can't intervene into the physical material world, that's a different scoring system. It's a different scoring system. Those are different lenses than Christians have. Now, it doesn't mean we need to rule out everything that that scientist uh, discovers and identifies. It just means we have to recognize that his or her approach is fundamentally different. Different starting point. Another consideration, when you read Scripture, consider the kind of literature within Scripture that you are reading. Right, we, we do that in our own reading today in the different forms of literature that we read. Similarly, in Scripture, the purpose of poetry is different from the purpose of narrative, is different from the purpose of didactic instruction and commands. So we should read those things differently. Um, Genesis 1 and 2, Psalm 104, this is poetry, which means there is truth absolutely within it, but we shouldn't try to stretch every detail to become a scientific manual. And then third, there's many more I could offer, but just a third consideration, consider how Scripture interprets Scripture. So ask yourself, when you wrestle with these concepts, is there another place in Scripture that, is, that, that this topic is spoken of? Does Jesus have something to say about this topic? Do the prophets, do the apostles have something to say about this topic? So just as an example, there's a lot of conversation and debate right now about Adam and Eve. Were they literal historical people, or is that account in Genesis just symbolic of the beginning of humanity, and they weren't an actual, uh, human, they weren't actual human beings? Well, the fact that Jesus and the apostle Paul and Luke all speak about Adam as if he were a real human being, that needs to influence the way that we think about that. We don't just have the poetry of Genesis 1 and 2 to consider. Okay. What I want to do as we look at each of these questions at the very end is just talk about what response this should compel for us. So when we think about this question of origin, God is creator of heaven and earth, what response should that compel from us? Well, just like the psalmist, that should compel worship in us. Bookending this psalm, psalmist says, Bless the Lord, O my soul. And literally what he's saying there is, Speak well of God. O my soul, speak well of God. Honor him. Uh, Consider his works. Give him credit. Give him praise for all that he has made and how he continues to sustain it, how how he continues to care for it. So because God is the creator of heaven and earth, we, we worship him. Second, let's talk about the question of meaning. Why, why are we here? Just a little light question, a little light thinking for you on this Sunday morning. Why are we here? If God is the creator of heaven and earth, if it's because of him that we and everything else exists, that will radically change our understanding of meaning. Specifically, it will be the difference between an existential purpose and a derived purpose for our lives. Those are big words, so let me just talk about that a little bit more. Um, existential purpose means that, um, that my meaning or my purpose has to come from me. It comes from within. So as an individual, I become my own starting point, and then I work outward from there. And if God is not the creator of heaven and earth, if he's not the sustainer of everything, that's really the best we can do. It's the best we can do. But it means that our role as we navigate this life will be to create meaning for ourselves. And we hear this all the time in our everyday language that we use. Um, Life is what you make it. Or create the life you want for yourself. Or you could probably fill in the blank with a lot of phrases that you just hear in common language today. 
That's the language of existential purpose. But underneath that, there's a striving, there's a struggling to create a life of meaning, all the while wondering if you're actually accomplishing that, all the while wondering if there's something more than just what you can create by yourself and longing for there to be something more than that. On the other hand, derived purpose means that our purpose comes from outside of ourselves. And this is what belief in God as creator of heaven and earth affirms. Because we were created by God, he is our starting point, and that means that meaning and purpose in life will be found in what God has done and what God is doing and what God will do. With a derived purpose, our role is no longer to create meaning, but it's to discover meaning. And those, again, are radically different lenses on the world. As we seek it out, what will we discover about God's purpose for us? Again, we could talk at length about this, but just a few ideas. One is that our purpose is to know and be known by God, to love and to be loved by God. He's personal. He's relational. He's created us for a relationship with him. Bishop in the early church named Augustine once famously put it this way, God, you have created us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. What is life for? What are we for? We are for God. Our purpose is also to recognize the worth and value of all that God has made. The meaning that he has given not just to me uh, and my individual life, but to all of his creation and then to respond in kind. We confess today about failing to love our neighbor as ourselves. When Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself, we should obey him just because he's Jesus, he commands it, we should do it. That should be enough of a motivation for us. But think about the meaning that's added if God is creator of heaven and earth. One scholar puts it this way. It means that within every circumstance, every object, every person, God's action is going on, a sort of white heat at the center of everything. It means that each one of us is already in a relationship with God before, we're ever, before we've ever thought about it. And it means that every object or person we encounter is in a relationship with God before they're in a relationship of any kind with us. And if that doesn't make us approach the world and other people with reverence and amazement, I don't know what will. So our purpose is to recognize the worth and value God has bestowed, not just on me and my life, but on all he's created to respond in kind. And all of that, as the psalmist says in verse 31, is so that the glory of the Lord might endure forever. Right? The ultimate meaning and purpose in life is found in this enduring glory of God. Now, what response should that compel from you and I? It should compel enjoyment. Enjoyment. And if that sounds odd to you that I would go there and say enjoyment, consider this. Um, Because you and I don't have to create our own meaning in life, we are free to actually enjoy it. We can receive from God's hand the good gifts of his creation rather than endlessly toiling to create our own path. 1 Timothy 4, uh, Timothy, or Paul says to Timothy, everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. One of the other uh, pastors in the Liberty Church Network named Jared Ayers has a great summary of this. He says that what God has made is innocent until proven guilty. It's good, it's from his hand, receive it, enjoy it. The psalmist here in verse 15 says, God not only has brought forth food and bread that sustain life, that keep us alive, he gives us oil to make our faces shine. That's more than a necessity to sustain life. You don't need oil on your face to live. He also says, 
And if you have roots like mine in the Wesleyan Church, the Southern Baptist Church, you could put your earmuffs on for this one. He also says that God gives wine to gladden the heart of men. That's not, that's not saying go be a lush and go drink all the time. It's not saying that at all. It's saying that wine is for more than just meeting the physiological need of thirst. It's for enjoyment. It's meant to gladden hearts. First question in the Wester, Westminster Shorter Catechism is all about this. It's all about meaning in life. The question is this, what is the chief end of man? What is man's purpose? What, what are we here for? And the answer that's given in the, in the Shorter Catechism to, to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. So because God is creator of heaven and earth, we glorify him, we enjoy him and what he has made now and forever. Third, let's talk about the question of morality. What is right and what is wrong? In the midst of all the worship of this psalm, we have verse 35. That's kind of stand out like a sore thumb to you when we got to the end of the psalm and read verse 35. It did to me. Let sinners be consumed from the earth. Let the wicked be no more. Okay? Those are not light words. Um, that is not, those are not light outcomes. So an important question for us as we consider God as creator, this is all this beautiful stuff he's made. Let sinners be condemned. Let sinners be no more. Who are these sinful people? Who are these wicked people? Um, what defines sin and wickedness? When we affirm trust in God as creator of heaven and earth, we affirm that those definitions don't, don't live and reside with us. They reside with God. And that really for us will be the difference between an objective morality and a purely subjective morality. Personally, for me, uh, culturally, I think for all of us, uh, we are inclined naturally towards subjective morality. And what I mean by that is that we tend to define sin and wickedness primarily in relation to ourselves. Right? What hurts me? What is offensive to me? And no doubt, we've, we've already seen that play out in a, a lot just this past week. The aftermath of the tragedy that happened last Sunday, the shootings in Orlando, 49 people killed, another 53 people injured. We've seen this, this pattern play out. So social conservatives are saying things like, well, the LGBTQ agenda, that's offensive to me. And on the other side, social liberals say, the pro-gun agenda personal rights and freedoms, that's offensive to me. And they're perhaps even tempted to quote verse 35 in relation to the other. Let conservatives be consumed from the face of the earth. Or let liberals be no more. Or all the moderates that are out there and just say, maybe God should do a Noah thing again and just wipe out everybody and start over. There was a, there was a sticker on, uh, or a, uh, like a comic on, uh, on social media this week about voting for an asteroid in 2016. Just end it all already because I can't vote for anybody that's running for president. That's kind of the mentality that's out there too. Who are these sinners and wicked people really? Who are they? Sinners in Psalms, or wherever that word appears in Scripture, that refers to those who reject God's gracious rule, those who persist in rebellion against him. Now, do you hear the difference in that? It's about a person's posture toward God, not their posture toward me. Um, sin is not defined by what offends me and my sensibilities. It's not defined by what offends the majority of people in any given era. It's defined by what offends the creator of heaven and earth, which means that's, and that's the objective part of this. There's an objective morality. Now, don't kid yourselves. That will not answer all of your moral questions nicely and neatly. It will not. But it certainly will change your lenses. And God as creator means that we look at sexuality through the lens of who God is, 
his creation and his design. God as creator also means that we look at personal rights and freedoms like the right to bear arms through the lens of who God is, his creation, his design. We don't reduce morality, no matter where you land on these topics, we don't reduce morality to the views of a political party or to personal taste or preference. It's about our relationship and posture toward God, not toward us. Now, what response should that compel from us? It should compel humble obedience from us. J.I. Packer says that God's claim upon us is the first fact of life that we must face. And we, and we need a healthy sense of our creaturehood to keep us facing it. In other words, if God is creator of heaven and earth, then quite simply that means that you and I are not. If God is creator of heaven and earth, I am not you are not. So we are not our own masters. God has a claim upon us. This is what the Apostle Paul speaks of in 1 Corinthians, even further reflecting on how much more this is true because of what Jesus has done. He says, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. So with these new lenses, we seek to align our lives with what God said is good. We seek to, to not be those who persist in rebellion against him. And I say here, humble obedience Because in our pursuit of obeying God, we can quickly accumulate a superiority complex. We're we're likely to compare ourselves with others and notice the places that everybody else isn't quite measuring up. They're not quite doing as good a job as I am. But if morality is defined in relation to God, then what does it matter where another person compares to me? As we seek to obey God, my, my charge to you would be don't make God small by making yourself big. That does no good for you as you seek to humbly obey. It does no good for the world when you're big and God is is small. Because God is powerful, eternal, because he's the creator of heaven and earth, we pursue a life of humble obedience to him. Okay, now fourth and finally, the question of destiny. Where is all of this going? What's the trajectory of everything that exists? The Creed actually talks a lot more about this in its closing statement. So toward the end of the summer, as we get there, we'll talk more about this. But just a small preview today. A scholar named uh, Michael Wilcock says this about the psalm that we are reading this morning, Psalm 104. He says this, We might properly say that Psalm 104 as a whole is a picture of what creation was meant to be and a kind of sketch of what it one day will be. And the discordant verse 35, that verse about sinners and the wicked, the discordant verse 35 is is ironically a tiny pointer to the cross of Christ through which the new creation will come into being. So here's what he's saying. Uh, We have this beautiful psalm exalting God as creator of everything. Tacked onto the end is this little verse about sin and sinners and the wicked. And together what that does, that reminds us of the story, the whole story that you and I are in. As Christians, particularly as Christians in the tribes that most of us feel most comfortable and at home in, we tend to focus only on half of the message of the gospel. We talk about the fall of humanity into sin, and we talk about the redemption that comes through the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And may we never stop talking about that because that is absolutely central and necessary to an understanding of the gospel. But that is only the middle half of the work of God. Because before the fall... There was God's perfect and good creation, free from all of the corruption and fracture of sin. And in the end, God will restore all that he has made to its original goodness. So when we affirm our trust in God as the creator of heaven and earth, we're reminding ourselves 
that not only are we not the captains of our own destiny, but that's actually the best news in the world for us because the God who was powerful enough to speak everything into being out of nothing is the God that will restore everything to its original goodness through the work of Jesus. It's good news. And we lose that vision of the future apart from seeing God as creator. We have no basis for it. Listen to just one example in the masterful words of C.S. Lewis, famous author. He says, confronted with cancer or a slum, the pantheist, believing God is bound up in his creation, can say, if you only could see this from the divine point of view, you would realize that the cancer or the slum also is God. The Christian replies, don't talk damned nonsense. For Christianity is a fighting religion. It thinks God made the world, that space and time, heat and cold, and all the colors and tastes and the animals and the vegetables are, are all things that God made up out of his head as a man makes up a story. But it also thinks that a great many things have gone wrong with the world that God made and that God insists and insists very loudly on putting them right again. So what response should that compel from us? It should give us resolved hope. A response of resolved hope. God will complete the work he has begun. He will, as the psalmist says in verse 30, he will renew the face of the ground. His creation and all that he has made witnesses to that very fact. And we're going to come in just a few moments to the table today and we're going to sing this great hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness. And the second verse of that song goes like this. Summer and winter and springtime and harvest, sun, moon, and stars in their courses above. Join with all nature in manifold witness to thy great faithfulness, mercy, and love. And then it proceeds to sing about how that gives us strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. So as you see the trajectory of everything that is, because God is the one who has made it, God is the one who is continuing to work actively in it, sing that song with a heart full of hope today. God's creation All that exists, that's a testament to why you and I have and can have strength for today and can have hope for tomorrow. Now as we close, what I want, what I would hope you walk away from today more than anything if you take away nothing else, see that the impact of trusting God as creator of heaven and earth is far bigger than simply answering the question of origin. Don't like put that nice and neatly in a category of like, okay, God is creator, that means uh, what happened in eternity past and that's really all that that bears weight on. I want you to see that God as creator of heaven and earth has implications on everything. The whole story that you and I are involved in, the fabric of everything that God has made, all the work that God is doing in the world. That God as creator of heaven and earth speaks not just to the question of origin, but to all of these foundational questions about life. It is what shapes our response to them. So because we have come from God, may we worship him. And because God gives meaning to our lives, may we enjoy him. Because God defines what is truly good and what is truly evil, may we humbly obey him. And because God will restore all that he has made to its original goodness, may we hope in him. Amen. Amen. Would you pray with me? God, we look to you and we rejoice that you are the creator of us and you are the creator of all things visible and invisible. Would you continue to shape our lenses, shape our view of the world in light of that creative work that you have done 
and the way that you, in an ongoing way, love and care for and sustain what you have made. We are the beneficiaries, the recipients of that in a way that we can't even comprehend. How your grace sustains us. Every breath in our lungs is because you have created us and you are sustaining us. And it bears weight on all of these questions that we wrestle with about meaning in life and morality in life and why we can have hope or, or why we wrestle to have hope in times and why we look at the world and, and see things that aren't the way they're supposed to be. You as creator of heaven and earth shapes all of that. So would you fill our hearts with these responses today of worship and enjoyment and obedience and hope. Make us people defined by those things at the core of our being because we look to you, we trust in you as creator of heaven and earth. And we pray that in your name. Amen.